This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The Law School of America. A lie is a statement used intentionally for the purpose of deception. The practice of communicating a lie is called lying. A person who communicates a lie may be termed a liar. Lies may be employed to serve a variety of instrumental, interpersonal, or psychological functions for the individuals who use them. Generally, the term lie carries a negative connotation and, depending on the context, a person who communicates a lie may be subject to social, legal, religious, or criminal sanctions. England and Wales. In England, if the prosecution seeks to rely on the fact the defendant lied, to police, for example, it is sometimes necessary for the judge to give the jury what is known as a Lucas direction. A Lucas direction is not used where the prosecution attempts to show the defendant committed the crime, and, if the jury finds the defendant guilty, this would mean the defendant had lied. The direction comes into play when the prosecution says, or the judge envisages that the jury may say, that the lie is evidence against the accused, in effect using it as an implied admission of guilt. This is quite distinct from the run-of-the-mill case in which the defense case is contradicted by the evidence of the prosecution witnesses in such a way as to make it necessary for the prosecution to say that the defendant's account is untrue and indeed deliberately and knowingly false. It is appropriate for a judge to give a Lucas direction. I, where the defense relies on an alibi, see also R. V. Heron, R. V. Leslie and R. V. Peacock. But not necessarily in every such case, see R. V. Patrick. 2 where the judge considers it desirable or necessary to suggest that the jury should look for support or corroboration of one piece of evidence in the case, and amongst that other evidence draws attention to lies told, or allegedly told, by the defendant. 3. Where the prosecution seeks to show that something said, either in or out of the court, in relation to a separate and distinct issue was a lie, and to rely on that lie as evidence of guilt in relation to the charge which is sought to be proved. 4. Where although the prosecution has not adopted the approach, in, 3, above, the judge reasonably envisages that there is a real danger that the jury may do so. A Lucas direction has three parts. The judge must tell the jury the lie is only evidence of guilt if they are satisfied the lie was made deliberately. The judge must remind the jury that people might lie not because they are guilty, but for other reasons, for example, to bolster a weak case, to protect someone, out of panic, or to cover up disgraceful behavior. The judge must tell the jury that because the lie alone is insufficient evidence, they should not rely solely on the lie but should also look to the other evidence to corroborate guilt. Authentication, in the law of evidence, is the process by which documentary evidence and other physical evidence is proven to be genuine, and not a forgery. Generally, authentication can be shown in one of two ways. First, a witness can testify as to the chain of custody through which the evidence passed from the time of the discovery up until the trial. Second, the evidence can be authenticated by the opinion of an expert witness examining the evidence to determine if it has all of the properties that it would be expected to have if it were authentic. For handwritten documents, any person who has become familiar with the purported author's handwriting prior to the cause of action from which the trial arose can testify that a document is in that handwriting. There are several kinds of documents which have generally been deemed to be self-authenticating documents. 
These include commercial labels, newspapers and other periodicals, and official publications of an arm of the government. A special category of evidence called an ancient document will be deemed authentic if it can be shown to be more than 20 years old, and found in a place and condition that a document of that age would likely be found. Chain of custody, cock, in legal contexts, is the chronological documentation or paper trail that records the sequence of custody, control, transfer, analysis, and disposition of materials, including physical or electronic evidence. Of particular importance in criminal cases, the concept is also applied in civil litigation and more broadly in drug testing of athletes and in supply chain management, for example to improve the traceability of food products, or to provide assurances that would products originate from sustainably managed forests. It is often a tedious process that has been required for evidence to be shown legally in court. Now however, with new portable technology that allows accurate laboratory quality results from the scene of the crime, the chain of custody is often much shorter which means evidence can be processed for court much faster. The term is also sometimes used in the fields of history, art history, and archives as a synonym for provenance, meaning the chronology of the ownership, custody or location of a historical object, document or group of documents, which may be an important factor in determining authenticity. Criminal Evidence when evidence can be used in court to convict persons of crimes, it must be handled in a scrupulously careful manner to prevent tampering or contamination. The idea behind recording the chain of custody is to establish that the alleged evidence is in fact related to the alleged crime, rather than having, for example, been planted fraudulently to make someone appear guilty. Establishing a chain of custody is made of both a chronological and logical procedure, especially important when the evidence consists of fungible goods. In practice, this most often applies to illegal drugs which have been seized by law enforcement personnel. In such cases, the defendant at times disclaims any knowledge of possession of the controlled substance in question. Accordingly, the chain of custody documentation and testimony is presented by the prosecution to establish that the substance in evidence was in fact in the possession of the defendant. An identifiable person must always have the physical custody of a piece of evidence. In practice, this means that a police officer or detective will take charge of a piece of evidence, document its collection, and hand it over to an evidence clerk for storage in a secure place. These transactions, and every succeeding transaction between the collection of the evidence and its appearance in court, should be completely documented chronologically in order to withstand legal challenges to the authenticity of the evidence. Documentation should include the conditions under which the evidence is gathered, the identity of all evidence handlers, duration of evidence custody, security conditions while handling or storing the evidence, and the manner in which evidence is transferred to subsequent custodians each time a transfer occurs, along with the signatures of persons involved at each step. Maintaining a chain of custody is essential for the forensic scientist that is working on a specific criminal case. The documentation of evidence is key for maintaining a chain of custody because everything that is done to the piece of evidence must be listed and whoever came in contact with that piece of evidence is accountable for what happens to it. This prevents police officers and other law officials from contaminating the evidence or taking the piece of evidence. Example An example of chain of custody would be the recovery of a bloody knife at a murder scene. 1. Officer Andrew collects the knife and places it into a container, then gives it to forensics technician Bill. 2. Forensics technician Bill takes the knife to the lab and collects fingerprints and other evidence from the knife. Bill then gives the knife and all evidence gathered from the knife to evidence clerk Charlene. 3. 
Charlene then stores the evidence until it is needed, documenting everyone who has accessed the original evidence, the knife, and original copies of the lifted fingerprints. The chain of custody requires that from the moment the evidence is collected, every transfer of evidence from person to person be documented and that it be provable that nobody else could have accessed that evidence. It is best to keep the number of transfers as low as possible. In the courtroom, if the defendant questions the chain of custody of the evidence it can be proven that the knife in the evidence room is the same knife found at the crime scene. However, if there are discrepancies and it cannot be proven who had the knife at a particular point in time, then the chain of custody is broken and the defendant can ask to have the resulting evidence declared inadmissible. Chain of custody is also used in most chemical sampling situations to maintain the integrity of the sample by providing documentation of the control, transfer, and analysis of samples. Chain of custody is especially important in environmental work where sampling can identify the existence of contamination and can be used to identify the responsible party. Supply Chain Management ISO Standard 22095, Chain of Custody, General Terminology and Models was published in 2020. The ISO describes this standard as a simple solution designed to help boost manufacturer and consumer confidence, reducing supply chain costs by addressing issues like risk, loss of time and conditions of production. Now a word from our sponsor, the Law School of America. Judicial notice is a rule in the law of evidence that allows a fact to be introduced into evidence if the truth of that fact is so notorious or well-known, or so authoritatively attested, that it cannot reasonably be doubted. This is done upon the request of the party seeking to rely on the fact at issue. Facts and materials admitted under judicial notice are accepted without being formally introduced by a witness or other rule of evidence, and they are even admitted if one party wishes to plead evidence to the contrary. Judicial notice is frequently used for the simplest, most obvious common-sense facts, such as which day of the week corresponded to a particular calendar date or the approximate time at sunset. However, it could even be used within one state to notice a law of another state, such as one which provides average baselines for motor vehicle stopping distances. Judicial notice in the United States. Judicial notice in the Federal Rules of Evidence. In the United States, Article 2 of the Federal Rules of Evidence, FRE addresses judicial notice in federal courts, and this article is widely copied by U.S. states. Article 2 of the FRE consists of a single rule, Rule 201. FRE 201 covers judicial notice of adjudicative facts, which are those concerning the parties to a proceeding, but not of legislative facts, which are general. FRE 201b permits judges to take judicial notice of two categories of facts. 1. Those that are generally known within the territorial jurisdiction of the trial court, for example locations of streets within the court's jurisdiction, or 2. Those that are capable of accurate and ready determination by resort to sources whose accuracy cannot reasonably be questioned, for example the day of the week on a certain date. FRE 201C notes that judicial notice may be permissive or mandatory. Under the wording of the rule, Judicial notice is permissive if the court takes such notice on its own but mandatory if a party requests it and the court is supplied with the necessary information. Courts have ruled that judicial notice must be taken of federal public laws and treaties, state public laws, and official regulations of both federal and local government agencies. A trial court's decision to take judicial notice or not to do so is reviewed on appeal under the standard of abuse of discretion. Judicial notice and the burden of proof. FRE 201F establishes that the effect of the court taking judicial notice is different in civil and criminal trials. In a civil trial, the fact taken notice of is thereby conclusively proved. In a criminal case, 
the defendant has the right to contest every fact that might tend to incriminate him. Therefore, the court taking judicial notice would simply allow the jury to make the finding that the court took notice of, but would not require this outcome, and would not prevent the defense from presenting evidence to rebut the noticed fact. Judicial Notice in Foreign Affairs Legal disputes about foreign affairs are generally settled by judicial notice by obtaining the information directly from the Office of the Secretary of State, in the United States. For example, if a litigant in an extradition hearing attempted to argue that Israel was not a sovereign state, a statement from the Secretary of State that the U.S. recognized Israel as a sovereign state would settle the issue and no evidence could be led to the contrary. In the United Kingdom, similar resorts could be had from the Foreign Secretary. Recently, Court of Appeals decisions regarding the legal rights of detainees of Guantanamo Bay took judicial notice of Cuba having no sovereignty over the U.S. naval base in that location despite claims by the United States government that it was Cuban territory and not subject to the application of United States law. Federal courts and the courts of most jurisdictions have determined that matters of foreign law are subject to permissive judicial notice. Official Notice during the prosecution phase of U.S. patent applications, a similar concept to judicial notice is applied by patent examiners, but the process is referred to as taking official notice. In a typical patent claim rejection, the examiner has to present prima facie evidence from the prior art, usually patent documents or other printed publications, that the subject matter of a rejected claim was known or would have been obvious prior to the application for patent by the inventor. However, Examiners may officially notice facts that are capable of instant and unquestionable demonstration as being well known. Patent applicants are then allowed to traverse the official notice given by an examiner, in which case the examiner must present an evidentiary document to prove the fact or limitation is well known. Historical examples In the 1858 murder trial of William Armstrong, his attorney, then former Congressman Abraham Lincoln, used judicial notice to establish that a claim by a witness to have used moonlight to see events could not have taken place since there was no visible moon that evening. This led to Armstrong's acquittal. In the 1934 United States Supreme Court case Home Building and Loan Association v. Blaisdell, Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes took judicial notice of the economic conditions of the Great Depression to help conclude that a state of emergency existed, and thus the state of Minnesota could properly impose on the contracts made by private persons to promote a broad societal interest. Specifically, the court upheld the Minnesota statute preventing loan companies from foreclosing on homes before 1935, despite mortgage agreements allowing companies the right to do so. In the 1981 case of Mal Mermelstein v. Institute for Historical Review, the Superior Court of Los Angeles County took judicial notice of the fact that Jews were gassed to death at the Auschwitz concentration camp in Poland during the summer of 1944. Judicial Notice in Australia In New South Wales, judicial notice may be taken of facts that are not reasonably open to question. This may include, for example, the location of well-known geographical features. However, both parties must be given notice of the judicial officer's intention to rely upon the information. Judicial Notice in Canada Besides the categories of judicially noticed facts found in other common law jurisdictions, the Supreme Court of Canada has required Canadian courts to take judicial notice of such facts as the history of colonialism in Canada and its harmful effects on Indigenous peoples. To be clear, courts must take judicial notice of such matters as the history of colonialism, displacement, and residential schools and how that history continues to translate into lower educational attainment, lower incomes, higher unemployment, higher rates of substance abuse and suicide, and of course higher levels of incarceration for Aboriginal peoples.
RVIP Lee, at Para 60. Some judges have taken a similar approach to the history of racism against other ethnic groups in Canada, such as African Canadians, concerning whom Justice Nakatsuru of the Ontario Superior Court of Justice wrote. I find that for African Canadians, the time has come where I as a sentencing judge must take judicial notice of such matters as the history of colonialism, in Canada and elsewhere, slavery, policies and practices of segregation, intergenerational trauma, and racism both overt and systemic as they relate to African Canadians and how that has translated into socio-economic ills and higher levels of incarceration. R.B. Jackson, at Para 82. However, some other judges have declined to follow this approach. The best evidence rule is a legal principle that holds an original of a document as superior evidence. The rule specifies that secondary evidence, such as a copy or facsimile, will be not admissible if an original document exists and can be obtained. The rule has its roots in 18th century British law. History and description. The best evidence rule has its origins in the 18th century case Omichan v. Barker, 1780 wherein Lord Herrick stated that no evidence was admissible unless it was the best that the nature of the case will allow. According to Blackstone's criminal practice the best evidence rule in England and Wales as used in earlier centuries is now all but defunct. Lord Denning Mister says that nowadays we do not confine ourselves to the best evidence. We admit all relevant evidence. The goodness or badness of it goes only to weight and not to admissibility. In the United States federal courts the best evidence rule is part of Article X of the Federal Rules of Evidence, Rules 1001 to 1008. The rule specifies the guidelines under which one of the parties of a court case may request that it be allowed to submit into evidence a copy of the contents of a document, recording or photograph at a trial when the original document is not available. If the party is able to provide an acceptable reason for the absence of the original then secondary evidence or copies of the content in the original document can be admitted as evidence. The best evidence rule is only applied in situations in which a party attempts to substantiate a non-original document submitted as evidence during a trial. Admissibility of documents before state court systems may vary. A self-authenticating document, under the law of evidence in the United States, is any document that can be admitted into evidence at a trial without proof being submitted to support the claim that the document is what it appears to be. Several categories of documents are deemed to be self-authenticating. 1. Certified copy of public or business records. 2. Official publications of government agencies. 3. Newspaper articles. 4. Trade inscriptions, such as labels on products. 5. Acknowledged documents, wherein the signer also gets a paper notarized, and 6. Commercial paper under the Uniform Commercial Code. Although most U.S. states have evidentiary rules similar to the federal rules of evidence, the California Evidence Code diverges significantly from the FRE in that it does not treat trade inscriptions as self-authenticating. This means that if a defendant does not stipulate to the authenticity and accuracy of a trade inscription, and the plaintiff lacks testimony from percipient witnesses who can establish a complete chain of custody leading back to the defendant, then the plaintiff must use expert testimony to establish the authenticity of the inscription and to get around the obvious hearsay issue, i.e., to establish, based on common practice within the trade, that the product is what the inscription says it is. The Law School of America This has been a Creative Commons licensed podcast. The content used in the podcast is licensed by the Wikimedia Foundation incorporated under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The text has been modified for audio.
The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. These podcasts are not associated with the Wikimedia Foundation in any context. The Law School of America. Thank you.